Would you take God's Word and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4? For those that are visiting, we are engaged in a series looking through 1 Peter and what it means to live in the midst of suffering. The song we just sang, and as I said last week, I'm auditory in nature, so I listen to words and I always ask, do we hear what we are singing? We sing about glorifying His name, that we want Him glorified. If that is true, it demands a certain kind of thinking and a certain kind of living and speaking from our part. We're going to discover that this morning. We're talking about waiting, and of course, in this particular context, we're talking about waiting for the second coming of Christ. And end times thinking has always been with us. Even when you read the New Testament, they believed that Christ would return in their day. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, just listen to these words. It says, children, it is the last hour as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. Now for those that were raised in my generation, you might remember when I was at Bible college, there was a speaker by the name of John Todd who was hitting the speaking circuit across the United States. He supposedly was transformed by Christ out of a satanic group called the Illuminati. He supposedly was high up, and by me saying supposedly, you know where this is going. He was converted to Christianity, and he spoke that there was a price on his head, that someday he would just simply disappear, and we'd never find him because they found him and they would execute him. He spoke how the Illuminati, this satanic group, had infiltrated most of the evangelical churches across the United States. In fact, he stated that this satanic group gave $8 million to Chuck Smith, who was a pastor in Costa Mesa, California, Calvary Chapel, to start the Christian rock and roll movement. Now, you know what happened in the 70s with all the conservative churches that didn't like that music? They hopped on the horse and they rode the, they rode the pony. They're saying, wow, look at this. See, it is satanic. We shouldn't have that kind of music. He said the takeover would happen in 1980. And he strangely disappeared in 1979. But he reappeared in 1987 because he was arrested for rape and child molestation and put 30 years in the state penitentiary. Later, he was transferred to a mental health facility where he died in 2007. Our impatience allowed many people to listen to this speaker and claim that he was right because he fit into their particular ideology. That's what we call inappropriate waiting. See, our impatience catches us between two emotions. There are some that just want to get away from this life. Life is painful. Life is hard. They want to see Jesus face to face. And they say, let's just get there right now Then there's the other emotion that, you know, we talk about Jesus, we pray to Jesus, we do all these kinds of things, and how cool would it be just to sit down and see him face to face for once? I mean, that's in us all. 
Peter reminds us in 2 Peter chapter 3. He writes, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. It's like, where are you, God? But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That is a great question. Since we are waiting and since he has not come yet, what kind of life should we live? Since his only reason for not coming is that he wants more people to repent, how should we then live? Francis Schaeffer back in the 70s wrote a book with that title and addressed a whole lot of different thinking. It's a worthwhile read. Here's our situation today because we're impatient. Our impatience leads us to unhealthy thinking and living. So the question becomes then, what are we to do while we wait? Now, Peter gives us some ideas. Now, by ideas, I don't mean opinions. By ideas, I mean he gives us truth. This is what God expects while we wait. Now, understand waiting, first of all, implies what we call a transcendent view of life. This is not all there is. This is a mere fraction of what is to come. And so the implications are this. While now we spend just a few hours with each other, and think about how difficult it is to get along sometimes. (laughs) Someday we're going to spend all eternity together. So, you know, the implication is this. We better learn how to get along now because guess what? There's forever waiting. So really what Peter talks about is learning to think and treat others properly, both inside and outside the kingdom. So we're going to go through four attitudes this morning. Four attitudes that we need to understand, and you can put these down, then we're going to break them apart. The first is a militant attitude towards sin. That's the first three verses we're going to look at. The second is a patient attitude towards those outside the kingdom of God. Third is an expectant attitude towards Christ. And then fourth, a loving attitude towards one another. So let's first deal with a militant attitude towards Christ. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 3. Since therefore, and therefore points us back to everything we studied so far. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So he's equating right now suffering as resolving the sin issue in our lives. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We trade out selfish will for divine will. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And the list could be a whole lot longer, but those categorize many things that we wrestle with inside our own souls. Now, have you ever gone to one of those restaurants that's supposed to be kind of high-end, and you wish you had a flashlight to find your table? (laughs) 
you know, makes me always think, what are they hiding? They don't want you to see the food. But what happens when you're there? When you sit there for a while, your eyes gradually grow accustomed to the darkness. Now, if we have a casual attitude towards sin in the Christian church, in the body of Christ, in our own lives, we often grow accustomed to the darkness of sin. So Peter comes along and says, you know what? You need to have a a militant, take no hostage. We're going to destroy this. We're going to wipe it out kind of attitude towards sin. You need to hate it. You need to understand what it does to the heart of God. It caused God to suffer through Jesus Christ. You need to understand what it does to other people, the kind of suffering that it causes them. You need to understand what it does to you, the kind of suffering that you want to blame everybody else for. And Peter says, think about what it did to Jesus. It tortured him. It killed him. You know, once a month at Grace, we take time to remember what our sin did to Christ and what he did to conquer it. So when you talk about a militant attitude towards sin, it's just that you don't hate it. It's also that you conquer it. And our desire is to help other people conquer sin as well. And Peter says you have a choice to live in sin, that's the will of Satan, or to live in the will of God. Now, we often reduce this to things that we do not know or that we do not practice. And so the list of sins over here is all those things that I don't do. Good Christians don't. You know, Paul at one point says that he's chief among sinners. I know a lot of people translate that to mean that in his past when he persecuted the church, when he literally took lives of people in the church, that he considered himself chief among sinners. The difficulty with that is he's talking about present tense, that he is chief among sinners. But here's what happens. As you grow in Christ, there are things that you realize that you never considered sin that you understand now breaks the heart of God. So Paul was looking at and having this militant view of sin. And so Peter says, listen, you can do what the Gentiles do. You can live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. You can turn your heart away from Christ. You can get accustomed to the darkness that you justify it, you rationalize it, you excuse it. Or you can do something about it. So that's the first attitude while we wait for Jesus. See, sin destroys people's lives. Just tears them apart. The second is a patient attitude towards those outside the kingdom. You've heard me say this before. Why do we expect unbelievers to behave like believers? So many times believers behave like unbelievers, and that's not good. But why do we expect people who are living in darkness to live as if they're in light? Let's look at verses 4 through 6. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And because of that, they malign you. 
but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. You know, Paul, before King Agrippa, gave his defense. And when Festus was listening to all this, here's what he said. And he said it, and I like this, he said it in a loud voice, which means he shouted this at Paul. He says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. When we deal with people in the world who are living in darkness, they are blind to spiritual truth. And we should not expect and we should be patient. We don't condone sin. We don't excuse it. But here's what Scripture says. We don't avoid them. We engage them. We're called salt, light, shining stars, living words. We are told that we're in the world but not of the world. Peter says we are sojourners in this world. So, instead of being angry with them, we're patient. In our patience, we pray for them. And in our patience, we give a defense to them when they ask us about their sin, and we do so with gentleness and respect. And again, I remind you, we live in community. This is not an isolated event. We do this together. We talked about why it's so critical that Jesus prayed in John 17 before he was crucified. He prayed for our unity. Father, may they be one as we are one. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Our unity defines us. And Peter talked a few weeks ago about the unity of the mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender hearts, humble minds. And he says when you suffer, it's not if, but when. You cannot let fear keeping you and us from living what is right. And that's hard because all of us want to be accepted and all of us know what it's like when sometimes we disagree. It's, it's kind of like this parent-teenager thing. And you know, the teenager comes along and they want to do something they know they can't do. And so what do they do to their parents? Well, if, if you love me, you'll let me. They go after the guilt. And then they throw a tantrum and, you know, sometimes they, they run away for a few days. Sometimes they lock themselves in their bedrooms. Recent situation here at GBC, one of our greeters was asked this question at the door. Now, again, think about you ministering in our church and how Peter says, be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you. Someone who was coming and visiting our church asked this greeter, they want to know GBC's opinion about same-sex marriage. Now, if you were that greeter, what would you do? They said, well, I don't know. Go talk to Pastor Greg. No, they didn't say that. They did not say that. Okay? But here's what they said. We as GBC don't have an opinion exactly. We stand on what God says in his word. We do not support same-sex marriage because God's word does not support it. And knowing the person, I'm sure they... We're kind in their words. It wasn't this angry, like, how could you believe this way? No, it was, you know, simply stated. And, of course, 
we accept and embrace all people because they're all made in the image of God. Now, they wrote me a letter. That's how I know what they said. And they did that for accountability reasons. But here's what I liked about their response. They said, we don't have an opinion. <laughs> it's not our opinion that matters, is it? Now, I know as a pastor, I get those questions all the time. And here's something I've learned that I do. and Maybe it'll help you. Um, I say, I'm curious. Why are you asking me that question? See, I want to know the intent of their heart. Are they coming to learn? Are they coming to accuse? Do they already have their mind made up? And so when I begin to unwrap where they're at, it helps me hear their story. And then I introduce Christ into that situation. Let's look at the third attitude. An expected attitude towards Christ. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Self-controlled means to be disciplined. Sober-minded means to be in the right mind. You know, we, we, we talk all the time about people being out of control in their thinking, how unbalanced they are. And when you look at the end-time theology, can you ask this question, do we have any unbalanced thinking? <laughs> well, I would have to say yes. Here's why. Entire denominations were split and started over nuances of end times thinking. They all agree he's coming back. They all agree that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. They all agree that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. But someone's over here saying, well, no, he's going to start here. No, he's going to start. No, he's going to. And because of those little nuances, they split entire denominations. May I allow to say that's nuts? <laughs> In fact, I'm going to say something stronger. It's sin. It violates the doctrine of unity. Our uncontrolled, undisciplined thinking allow us to divide what we should not divide. And that's why I say an expectant attitude towards Christ. Our self-control or sober-minded. And here it's interesting because it says, listen, you want to learn to pray right? You want to learn to pray for the right things? You better learn to think right. You let it, better learn to be disciplined. You better learn to have Christ front and foremost. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying you can't have an opinion on this, nor am I saying that you should not study this. Just don't become obsessive and exclusive. Those two words together. In other words, your way is the only way, and everybody else is going to hell that doesn't believe like you. And I've, act, I've actually had people tell me that. Now, why is it important to have all this? Well, for the sake of your prayers. We fail to realize that unclear minds will not pray very well. Now, if you don't believe Peter, listen to what James says in James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder, you covet, you cannot obtain. You fight, you quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's all about you. It's not about Christ. And then James says this, and it sounds harsh, but listen to what he says. He goes, you adulterous people. You're having an affair with another idol over here. See, that's what uncontrolled 
undisciplined thinking does. We pursue false idols. We don't pursue Christ. We pursue false idols. Now what James is describing here is nothing new. It's, it's what we call consumer-driven religion. It's all about what we want. And of course the implication is when there's quarreling and fighting over stuff, we're committing adultery with God. We don't like to hear that, but that's the implication of what James is saying. The problem is we don't focus on Christ. We focus on everything else. Now let me give this illustration, and while it may be extreme and hard to believe, it's appropriate to this. One of the churches I pastored, I remember a couple coming for the first time. And when she walked in, she had big red earrings and makeup on. Somebody in that church that was raised in that church, that was a member of that church, went to her after the service and said, if you want to attend this church, you have to take off the earrings and makeup because it does not honor God. Now, there's two problems with that. One is they didn't take the time to figure out if this person was even a believer. The assumptions were they walked in a church. They must have been. I mean, how undisciplined is that? The second problem was the focus was not on the person. It was on stuff. And we all know that with a variety of cultures we have around the world, there's a variety of ways people dress to worship. It's just not the way that I think they should dress. But in this person's mind, they created one way to dress. And that violates the diversity of unity that we find in Scripture. It was that same person that when I wore a tie one day, it was red. They looked at me and said, take off that dog's tongue because it doesn't honor God. They believe that tongues, they believe that tongues, they believe that, that ties were vain and too cultural. Can I just stop here and, and say this for a moment? This is what keeps people away from the church. I know we talk about we are so tired of politically correct thinking in Washington. Amen? <laughs> what about the politically correct thinking in our churches? Where we try to micromanage everybody's behavior. Where we try to micromanage their thinking. Rather than humbly bowing our knees before Christ, coming to worship to an audience of one. And that really gets into the fourth attitude then, a loving attitude towards one another. Look at verse 8, following. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. Actually, sins, plural. Showing hospitality to one another to one another, and the word hospitality means love for strangers, so we see this consistent theme of love, without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified, we sang about that through Jesus Christ. Tim belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, there's several things here. Several things. Uh, love one another. It covers a multitude of sins. It's not the only place that this is seen. In James 5, verse 19, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth 
and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So what's he talking about? Well, I think there's multiple levels to this. One is, of course, Christ's atonement. It's Old Testament language about covering sin. And so we reflect, and if we hate sin, we know that the only way to deal with sin is through who? Through Christ. That's healthy thinking. You can't fix that person. I can't fix that person. That's unhealthy thinking. You can't stop them from sinning. You can't stop yourself from sinning. That's unhealthy thinking. But we yield ourselves to Christ. We allow his spirit to invade our lives. Then we make choices that are consistent with him. He supplies the strength that we need. I think the second thing that it talks about covering a multitude of sins is, is because we are forgiven, we do what? We forgive. We don't hold that sin against a person. We don't sit there and say, well, you know, um, do you know what that person did eight years ago? No, we don't do that. We forgive, and we treat that person as if that, nev- if that, as if that sin never existed. I, I hear a lot of people talk all the time, well, I can't forgive. I say, why? They say, well, I just can't. I said, are you talking about the emotion? They said, yes. I said, well, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says, listen, you were to treat that person as if they never sinned. You may still feel it in your heart. Many of you know I work with sexual abuse victims. I don't know how they emotionally get over that stuff. Now, I've seen God do incredible miracles through that, but initially it's treating that person in a way that they do not deserve, even though their emotions are crying out like, I can't do this. They still do it by the grace of God. So when we forgive, we don't hold the sin against them. That's covering a multitude of sins. But also another way it covers a multitude of sin is that this love in Christ, when we yield ourselves to Christ, it keeps us from a multitude of sins. Amen? And that's why Peter says, let your love be earnest. The word earnest means true. We understand that Christ forgives our sins. We forgive each other of our sins. But also in Christ, he keeps us from other sins. Just imagine if you did not find Christ when you did, where your life would be and what you would have done. Now, another step to this is hospitality, love for strangers. You know, persecution has a lot of implications, and one of them is that people were put out in the streets. And Peter says, listen, if you still have a house, don't grumble about those in the streets saying somehow their faith isn't strong enough to give them what you have. He says, no. See, it's an opportunity. And again, this is hard for us to grasp because we don't live in that kind of tension. We don't live in a tension where people literally are losing everything they had. And the only way they'll survive is by the grace and hospitality of somebody else. So Peter says, be generous when strangers are among us. Of course, the third level he talks about here then is loving service. That our gifts are opportunities. And again, if you say, I have no gifts... You're not being sober-minded. You're not being disciplined. That's unhealthy thinking. You're confused by the deception of this world. If you say, I can't serve until, you're not being sober-minded. You're confused by the prince and power of this world. See, the picture in Scripture is that this church is a physical body. 
and it has fingers and its hands and its arms and its toes, has head, eyes, ears. And if somebody doesn't serve according to their gift, the body's disfigured. If you fail to serve, you disfigure the body. See, if we don't get this loving thing right, we create a body of our own making. It kind of reminds me of the old story, and if you've read the original story, it's very different than the movie story of Frankenstein where the guy got various body parts sewed together and, you know, created what he called life. And what he really created was a monstrosity. In the body life of our own making, it gets so constricted because we micromanage, we inhibit loving service. We sit there and say, well, you can't serve until you sign our doctrinal statement and until you become a member and vote. And See, we should actually move the obstacles away for people to serve. The focus here, again, reading the passage, is on God, his strength, his glory. Do you see that in there? One who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the question at the end of worship, at the end of day, because sometimes worship is translated service and sometimes service is translated worship. Very interesting word. But the end of worship And by that I mean the end of our day, just not the service. The question we should ask is, God, were you pleased with my worship? Did I bring you glory today? And here's what this passage is talking about with these attitudes. It's saying, listen, I want you to think about the possibilities. I want you to think about the possibilities that you do not have to get involved with. We call it sin. I want you to think about the possibilities of loving service, of how you can think well and pray well and live well and engage in a way that you thought not possible. But just don't think about you individual. Think about GBC. And just don't think about GBC, but think about the church because it's one church worldwide, even though we have our little denominations that violate the politics, PC, language of our particular group. But I want you to think about the possibilities of the kingdom of God. So let's review the four attitudes again. Militant attitude towards sin. A patient attitude towards those outside the kingdom of God. An expectant attitude towards Christ. A loving attitude towards one another. Why? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to him belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen and amen. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I say, come, I want to pray with you. Father God, all of us need help in these four areas. So I pray for the grace. I pray for your spirit. I pray for your truth this week that no matter what situation, you give us the right words, the right silence. And until we see you face to face, may we proclaim your glory throughout this world and see life as an opportunity to display hope to a world that so desperately needs hope. We know that. We see it every single day. 
May we glorify you this week. In your name we pray. Amen.